Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And for more than 10 years with SNN, I've been doing interviews with microcap management teams at investor conferences globally, as well as online. Our SNN Live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest, and then one can discover more by going to that company website. But personally, I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on that's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies, so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of. One of the many reasons why I love the microcap space. So if you love microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party product services or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Brad O'Connor, CEO of Cogstate Limited. It's a publicly traded company, the symbols are CGS on the ASX and COGZF on the OTCQX. The company is an industry leader in digital cognition tests that are used primarily in drug trials to see if the drug is impacting cognition. The company operates through two segments, healthcare and direct-to-consumer. As a provider of digital cognition tests for Alzheimer's disease clinical trials and direct-to-consumer via its global commercial partner, Esai Company Limited, with the recently announced digital tool CogMate in Taiwan and Hong Kong. With the recent FDA approval of Aduhelm to address the underlying biology of the disease, the first of its kind, Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders had a major breakthrough. Cogstate seeks to capitalize on the secular bull market in Alzheimer's R&D and commercialization without being a drug development company themselves. Brad O'Connor has a background you wouldn't expect as he does not come from the healthcare industry, and he has a very unique perspective on growing the business. Brad and I discussed the following topics, Alzheimer's R&D commercialization, how the clinical trials are set up, creating digital cognition tests for the consumer, barrier to entries for digital cognition testing market, and data and analytics opportunities. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Brad O'Connor, CEO of Cogstate. Welcome everybody to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today on the show is Brad O'Connor. He is the CEO of Cogstate Limited. It's a publicly traded company. I got two symbols for you, CGS on the ASX and COGZF on the OTCQX. And with that, Brad, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. And thank you for, you were the one that figured out the time difference for us today. So I appreciate you taking care of all of that. Uh, I, being that you're a global Coming company. Coming to you from the future, from tomorrow. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. I was going to say, being the global company that you are, you I think you have every time zone perfectly figured out by now. Yeah, it's um, it, it's one of the joys of uh, running an international company. Absolutely. Well, we're going to get into all that in a second. But the first question that I like to ask everybody on this show, or that I, this is the first episode, so that I will be asking everybody on the show, and you're going to be the first guinea pig to, to hear it, is what would you say is that one line that best describes Cogstate? So what we're trying to do is uh, make brain health assessments accessible to people. We want to essentially democratize it. Very good. Yeah, I mean, look, not a, the reason I wanted that to be the first question, just so everybody knows, is a lot of companies, it's very, very difficult to describe what they do in one sentence. You know, some of it could be the flowery language and you're like, okay, what? And then it's very direct, like how you just said it right now. So 
because it's been so direct and that was very simple to understand. Let's get into that kind of overview, you know, and a little bit of history for folks that may not have heard of Cox State before. When did it start and how'd you get to where you're at today? Yeah, so we started um, in the late 90s, um, started with this. Uh, the original investment thesis was around an aging population, an increasing incidence of Alzheimer's disease. Um, at that time, mistakenly, we thought that the world was not far away from a disease-modifying treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Remember, this is late 90s. And we're thinking about this problem that exists in, in terms of primary care medicine, uh, general practice medicine, of the lack of time and the lack of training that doctors have to be able to assess the cognition to identify someone who might benefit from one of these treatments. Um, and the idea was that how can we use technology to solve that problem, right? Because, because in, in neurology and, and in brain health assessments, at that time and still very much today, it's a really manual process. It relies on the skill of an individual physician you know, assessing a patient. Um, and we thought that we could just bring technology to that and we could make that process easier. We could make it more reliable, um, less, um, you know, dependent on the skills of the, of the, of the physician. And, and we could get some real accuracy to that. Um, and, of course, you know, then with technology, you can bring you know, real-time data and real-time analysis and, you know, all those benefits that come from um, an electronic or digital assessment versus an analog assessment. Um, so that was the original investment thesis. Um, but of course, you know, we're now 20 odd years on and we're still, you know, we're just about there maybe perhaps, depending on who you talk to with, with in terms of the launch of the first Alzheimer's therapeutic. So we had to take a few left turns, um, you know, to try and, yeah, he's suffering from that classic startup problem of a solution looking for a problem. Um, well, we knew what the problem was, but there wasn't demand for it. And so we found demand for that technology once we got it validated um, it, from pharmaceutical companies who were running these global clinical trials and needing to assess cognition in the context of Alzheimer's disease studies or other studies, but then suffering from a different problem, which is, how do you make sure you get really consistent assessment if you're running that study across 27 countries in 40 languages and, you know, 200 different physicians doing that? How do you make sure all, every one of those assessments is exactly the same? And, you know, so our answer was use a better test. So tell, tell us a little bit about more about the test itself. How is it different from just, you know, let's say you were the physician assessing me that one-to-one, -one, like, all right, you know, checking me out kind of thing versus the actual technology behind the test. And why, why was it validated by all these pharmaceutical companies? Yeah. So I think the, one of the things is to understand that those, um, you know, physician assessments are very high quality, right? So it's not, we're not trying to build a better mousetrap in that sense, right? So if you've got a good physician undertaking assessment, that's a really high quality product. It's just not very scalable, right? So what we're trying to do is essentially bring a consistency of assessment that doesn't require expert administration because if everyone who needs a cognitive assessment needs to go and see a highly trained neurologist or neuropsychologist, there's just not enough of them. So in building the intelligence, if you like, into the software program, what we did is take that assessment from a highly trained physician to a practice nurse or an admin staff who can supervise that assessment really. And the job of that person then is really just to make sure that the patient is comfortable and that they're understanding what's being asked of them. And the computer can do all of the assessing. Um, it, as I said before, what it means is we get in real-time data. Um, so if we want to do you know, on-the-spot analysis, we want to do decision-making. We don't have to go in there, go away and calculate what does this data mean. We can do real-time comparison to a normative data set. So we've built up this really large normative data set so we can tell you based on your age-matched peers, are you normal? If you've done more than one assessment, we can see whether you've changed, right? And in the context of, uh, you know, drug delivery, that change may be quick or it may be slow. Right? So if you think about, you know, if, for example, say we wanted to give you a, um, 
a, a hay fever tablet, you know, something that helps with your allergies. And one of the side effects of that may be it may make you a little bit drowsy. Well, it's not going to make you drowsy in seven hours. It's going to make you drowsy pretty much straight away. So a, a consequence of drowsiness would be a slowing in cognitive thinking. We'd be able to tell you that straight away. So if we measured your pre-tablet and after tablet, we'd be able to tell you straight away. Now, mostly in the context of clinical drug trials, we're not looking for that real-time data unless we're perhaps worried about something adverse happening. You know, really what we're looking for is change over a much longer period of time. But the context and the and the concept of it remains exactly the same. We measured you once, we're measuring you again, and we're seeing have you changed. And if everything else has stayed the same, right? then the thing that's changed has been we've given you this treatment and therefore this is what's happened to your, to your thinking. Um, so we've had to, you know, so when we started out, we had to prove that this little computer program was as reliable as an assessment by a trained uh, physician. And so how do you do that? You run studies where you assess thousands and thousands of patients. You assess them with a physician, you assess them with the computer and you say, do these results match up? Remembering, of course, we're looking for equivalence. We're not looking, it doesn't have to be better. We just need to say, this is the same as what is if the physician did it, right? But we've got all these other benefits that come from digital assessment. Got it. And when you were putting the algorithm together for the technology, I mean, I would assume that there's probably with minimal variance, but there might be different types of questions asked globally in order to make sure that you address all these different markets, all these different languages, all these different cultures for folks that need these, these cognitive tests, right? Right. So, and it's one of the failings um, of cognitive assessment, or at least what we see as one of the failings of cognitive assessment, is they tend to be very much based in language and culture, right? Because this is how we think about the way the brain works, right? Now, the problem, and, and that's fine if I'm assessing you, Right? If we're both sitting in North America and I'm assessing you um, and we're doing that within the context of the same language, same levels of education and the same culture, right? I can say that this is normal. If I then try and take that cultural context and assess someone in China or Japan or Russia, right? we've got different cultural aspects and different language aspects. Then we, and then, you know, so based on that, the assessment needs to change, right? And we'll do this for, we help pharma companies do this. We will we'll go, through, we'll take it as a standardised assessment. We'll take it through a translation process to put it into the natural, you know, into the person's home language. But then when we do that, we'll also do what we call a cultural adaptation where we'll get local language experts to say, is this really measuring the same thing in your culture, right? It's a really complex process. Our our point was, why don't you just use a better test? Right? Why don't you use something? So most of our tests use um, game-like stimuli, right? So we take culture out of it um, and we, say, we, we find stimuli that can be common across the world. We largely take language out of it. So we try and a lot of our assessments are just a yes or no answer, right? So we'll, we'll show you, for example, a playing card then show you a different playing card and say, is it the same? Yes or no, right? So the, the complexity, if you like, or the secret source in the assessment is the simplicity of the assessment, taking out language and culture so you don't have to adapt for those things. So, the, so then the, the software that you validate can be used in Australia, in the US, in Japan, in Russia, in China, and it's exactly the same technology. Got it. All right. So take me to the business. You know, what exactly are you selling? How are you selling it? Are you, is various partnerships, uh, you know, we list for everybody out there. We didn't, Brad and I did an interview together for my YouTube channel uh, back in March, 2020 in what seems like ages ago, uh, where we, we, I think that was when the company first talked about the agreement with the ESI, I believe, but um Love to hear about the business and, and how that all works. Yeah, so um, the majority of our revenue still comes from the work that we do in clinical drug trials, where our, our customers are large pharmaceutical companies who are running clinical trials 
and we we manage the assessment of cognition within those clinical trials. So that might be for central nervous system indications, you know, things like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis or things like that. Or it may be non-CNS indications. It may be in oncology. You know, we might be worried that, um, that your chemotherapy is causing some degree of cognitive impairment, not making you feel very well and not making you think very clearly. So we work across a range of indications there. And largely, as I said before, what we're seeking to do is say, um, to, is to assess someone pre, um, pre-baseline or pre their, their first treatment and to then to assess them periodically through their treatment protocol to say, has the treatment, the drug, impacted the way that this person is thinking? So in something like Alzheimer's disease, of course, what you're trying to show is that they're improving or, in fact, they're not getting worse. In Alzheimer's disease, what you're trying to show is that they're staying the same while the people in the placebo are getting worse, right? And so, and so that's, that's our major market. And as I said, our... our our customers there are large pharmaceutical companies, companies like Eli Lilly, Novartis, Pfizer, um, Biogen, Merck, those kind of companies. Real, real quick, I just want to follow up on that real quick. And, and this will be my first pseudo challenge. I, I, whatever, it, it might not be, but here we go. Um, why, why do these pharmaceutical companies need to have the cognitive tests to test that. Now that might seem like a dumb question, but I but hear me out, everybody. Listen, the, the reason I ask is, is because you would think, all right, let's just hire a bunch of, you know, a few physicians to to test all the patients, right? To see if there is improvement. But is do they bring your tests on in order to just do this at scale to have the larger trials? Is that what what's the thought process? So there's an element of both. So okay. I think, you know, so it's so it's in no way a silly question because mostly that is how the assessment is done in a clinical trial. We'll bring on lots of different physicians. We'll train them up to try and make sure that they that how they do it in every country and at every site is exactly the same. Um, and then we'll take the data. All right. So that's still a very valid way of assessing cognition. And we, in fact, as part of our business, we will help pharma companies to do that. Um, but at the same time, we will also deploy our own software in there. Um, and there's, there's a couple of different reasons for that. Um, so in certain indications, we've so, shown really good uh, sensitivity of our assessment. So they're highly sensitive to change. Um, and especially if you're looking at change over time, that our assessments can, in fact, be more sensitive than a standardised assessment. Um, and then also when pharma companies are thinking down the track of when we get this onto market, we're not going to be able to send all these people to a neurologist. There's just not enough neurologists in the world. What? How are they going to be assessed? So there's an element of thinking about how do we prove the drug works, but then there's also an element of once we prove that the drug works, how do we get people onto that drug, right? So what's the test that gets them onto that drug? And so, and of course, that test needs to be scalable and available and easy to use and easy to administer in real time and cheap and all of those things you want. You know, to lower the barrier of entry of getting people onto your drug because at the end of the day, that's what pharma companies trying to do. They're trying to they're trying to help. You know, they're trying to help in terms of finding treatments, but they need to get that drug into into people um, to create the revenue that they want to create. So that that's that's sort of our first market. The second market for us really goes back to that original investment thesis of the aging population, increasing incidence of Alzheimer's disease. How do we help primary care doctors to determine who may benefit from a from a treatment. So in that context, we've partnered with Japanese pharmaceutical company, ASI. Um, so ASI have a long history in Alzheimer's disease. In 1997, they in fact launched what's still today the most common symptomatic treatment of Alzheimer's disease called Aricept. So they launched that back in 1997. Um, they have partnered with Biogen in respect of each other's Alzheimer's disease program. So they have an interest in Aduhelm. Um, they also have their own um, therapeutic, another uh, monoclonal antibody called um, lecanemab that they're taking through clinical trial phase three clinical trials currently. So they've got an interest in Alzheimer's disease, but I think more importantly for us, they've got a stated ambition to take a holistic approach to aging and Alzheimer's disease. So they're investing in 
cognitive assessments like us who are investing in blood-based biomarkers to determine whether people have got amyloid in their brain. They're investing in home-based nursing care. They're investing in therapeutics, obviously. So they're looking at a, a whole range of how do we treat um, the aging process and improve the, you know, the, the lives of Alzheimer's disease patients. And so that was really interesting um, to us in terms of that, that overall approach. So we partnered with them in um, uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, and um, so that's a global agreement where they're going to take our technology um, you know, into both physicians' offices and, and also direct-to-consumer. Great segue, because I, I that was one part that I really wanted to ask you about, because in, in I've talked with a few investors I was having you on today, and uh, really one of the, it seems like one of the biggest opportunities is this blue sky opportunity for Cox State test going direct to consumers. So tell us a, a little bit about the the idea there, and maybe where we're at in, uh, in those efforts. Yeah, so the, the idea is to really look at the opening of the funnel. So um, in the context um, that most people don't actively assess their brain health like we might cholesterol or something else, right? How do we make that easy for people? And so one of the advantages, of course, of digital assessments of health, of any kind of this digital assessment of health, whether it's a Fitbit or something else, right, is it, puts, it gives data to the individual. So along those same lines, what we've been thinking about is how do we provide people with data so that they can understand that something's wrong, right? So if I'm wearing my Apple Watch and it tells me that my heart rate is going through the roof or something and, and it's not because of something that, that's happening, a natural thing for me to do would be going to see my doctor and say, listen, doc, I was just sitting at home on the couch watching the television and suddenly my heart rate went through the roof. Do you think we need to do some tests, right? That's just the same idea, right? So if we provided people with access to low cost, easy to use, you know, phone-based assessments. Does that help us to identify, you know, the, as a second, so this is why I say the opening of the funnel, right? If, if everybody's doing some, not everybody, but you know, lots of people are doing some kind of cognitive assessment, does it help identify someone who says, apparently this is not right. Maybe I need to go and see my doctor about this and get us to that next step of, of you know of then a, a physician assessment which may then in lead to somebody going on some medication which helps them to think a bit better are there enough neurologists out there can you imagine this no. thing? like no, what, there's, what happens? So there's no way there's no way so currently yeah you know, there's not enough you know neurologists neuropsychologists there's just not enough for so we know for a fact that alzheimer's disease is underdiagnosed so notwithstanding the fact that it's in the United States, the fifth leading cause of death, it's the only of the top 10 causes of death in the United States, it's the only one without a treatment, if you exclude Adjahelm, which has just been released. Um, uh, and we know that it's underreported because people don't assess their brain health and people have this belief that, well, you just forget things as you get older. And that's not true. It's true if there's something going wrong with you, right? And so, so we know that. And the healthcare systems, so it can't be that we just suddenly start sending everybody for routine checkups at a neuropsychologist or a neurologist. I mean, it would bankrupt the healthcare system for a start, right? So how can we use technology, you know, really low-cost, non-invasive assessments to act as that filter so that, that our trained physicians and the cost of that is only being applied to, you know, to people who actually need um, some kind of assessment and treatment. So we're not trying to take the place of those. We're just trying to act as a filter so that the, the people who go through to that treatment actually need it. Got it. Yeah, because I mean, I wonder if it if it becomes like, a, oh, this is a good problem to have. Like, all right, Cox State DTC goes global. I mean, who knows? You you might start seeing a, a huge boom in in folks going down that path, becoming neurologists. Well, I think yeah. I mean, so the idea is, I mean, I think if we if we just talk about Alzheimer's disease for a second, all of the treatments that everyone's working on, um, are 
there's not a magic pill that's going to take you from Alzheimer's disease to you are back to normal. Right? What they're seeking to do is to stop you declining. Right? So if, you, if that's the case, what you want to do is you want to identify that decline at the earliest possible stage right? so you can maintain at that much higher level. Um, so all of this relies on early identification of, of change right? in terms of better patient outcomes. And if we get better patient outcomes over time, that reduces healthcare costs substantially, right? Because you, because the people are less sick, they need less care. There's less people in in nursing homes, in you know, in, in sort of you know, palliative care. Right? All of those things reduce costs substantially if we identify problems early. And this is true of all medicine, right? All medicines sure. around, you know, if you identify the problem early, right, we can save money. Is there an education risk though? Because you know, I think about. You know, like I think about my grandfather, for instance, you know, he smoked cigars entire his entire life, was not about to go in and go and do a lung assessment because he didn't want like, cool. yeah, I know my lungs are probably crap right now, but I will be continuing to smoke cigars because I love cigars. You know, like yeah. a little obviously it's a little different. We're speaking specifically right to Alzheimer's and neurocognitive diseases. But is there now, that seems like that there's going to be a need for a lot of investment to educate a lot of people and say, hey, you know, if you're, if you're having these issues or you're not, you know, you're starting to forget things a little bit more often, maybe you should go get that. I mean, I could imagine there's a good amount of people that just wouldn't want to know. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the, I, I think the critical aspect there is, but is there something you can do to change it? So to take sure. your grandfather's situation right so there what we're saying is you know yeah the, the choice that you're presenting there is but i don't want to stop smoking my cigars because i really like doing that right what if you know in in the context of alzheimer's disease right so at the moment why would i want to know because there's nothing i can do about it which is why we've always said for our business the opportunity changes significantly once there is a treatment option, right? So what, what if, you know, you want to know because we can actually make you better, right? And it doesn't mean you need to stop doing Maybe there are some things you need to stop doing or need to start doing, right? But the idea of we can make you better, you can take this pill and we can make you better um, is a reasonable incentive to find out whether there's something wrong. And so, yeah, and so... The analogy I would use in that situation is cholesterol, right? So, again, so you could take this, make the same argument. Well, why do I want to test my cholesterol? Because, you know, I like my cheeseburgers and I like my, you know, sure. I don't really want to go for a walk and all those <laughs> kind of things, right? But you get, you know, come in, go to the doctor. We're going to measure your cholesterol, right? Yes, you should really improve your diet. Yes, you really should do some exercise. But at the very least, what we're going to give you is this great drug called Lipitor, and that's going to lower your cholesterol and that's going to lower your heart disease risk, right? So you may or may not, and you absolutely should, but we understand that you may or may not improve your diet, improve your exercise. Take the drug anyway, because it's going to help you. It's going to help you live a little bit longer. Very good. All right. So I want to get to some more uh, company focused questions. Before I dive into a few of them, you know, for those who may not have heard our initial interview or have heard your background before, you know, from what I understand, you're not, you're not a clinical doctor by background, you know, so it's just, I, it's to, to me, it's still pretty amazing how you practically, practically a doctor, Rob. That's what I tell everybody. <laughs> At this point, right. Um, so, <laughs> no, I'll get, I'll get yeah. a background in finance. Um, so, uh, you know, trained at what was Coopers and Lybrand in those day, days, now PricewaterhouseCoopers. So, um, yeah, so I'm a long way from home. Um, joined Cog State in 2004 as a part-time CFO. Um, wasn't even a full-time gig um, in those days, and took over as CEO in December of 2005. So, um, so it's been a labour of love over many years. Um, you know, I was fascinated by the idea and the opportunity. Um, yeah, you know, in, in in many ways. You know, so people invest in companies in different ways, right? I mean, you know, both from a, you know, in a monetary way or, you know, some people invest with their time, um, you know. So I'm an investor in Cogstate in both senses, in, you know, in terms of uh, with my money and also uh, um, with now, 
you know, what are we coming up, 16 years or 17 years or something? Um, you know, because I think, because I see the opportunity, I think that I think the market opportunity is enormous. I see the need for it. I think we have some really smart scientists, um, you know, who who underpin all of this. Um, and just logically, the move to digital assessment in all aspects of healthcare just makes so much sense. So there's it just the opportunity makes so much sense. Yeah, and has always made so much sense to me that I believed that it had to, um, that somebody had to solve this problem, right? Now, the question as to whether it would be Cogstate or whether it would be somebody else, I suppose, is execution risk, right? But, but, I, but I fundamentally believe in the opportunity. Um, and so, you know, and so that's what sort of kept me here for, for this time. And, and, you know, and it sort of feels like the last you know, a couple of years, we're really starting to to make some ground. But unsurprisingly, that's been as we're getting closer to treatments for Alzheimer's disease. I mean, that's by, that's kind of one of my biggest questions. You've been, not, like you just, you said, you've been in the company 16, 17 years now. You know, you've been part of the company before Facebook was even a company. You know, I, I this before telehealth became a huge, you know, a, a a big thing, you know, the, I mean, were there times? Are you suggesting I could have done more with my life? Or <laughs> I'm, I'm just wondering, <laughs> I have to ask. I mean, I, I mean, you're also talking about one of the most volatile um, target patient populations out there that people have been wrecking their brains for years. That's not upon at all, but like I've really been wrecking their brains forever to try and figure out some kind of solution for. So, I mean, were there times where you're asking yourself, what am I doing? Why am I still doing this? A hundred percent. And but I I would think that would be the case in you know you know essentially we even though you know when I joined we were a public company we were still a startup and that's got more to do with the Australian public company market than it has to do with uh, uh, with anything else you know. Um, but I think anyone who's run a startup for a for a considerable period of time will will, will tell you that the point where you just go. I've got to stop doing this. This is stupid. We're going backwards. We're not getting anywhere. Um, yeah, so I don't think we're in any way unique in that. You know, there's challenges along the way. There, yeah, and that's probably true of much more mature business as well. They're just different types of challenges. But there's all, yeah, there absolutely has been times where you where you've gone. I don't think this makes sense. And remembering for more than ten years, I split my time between Australia and the United States. So every two weeks. I was flying from Australia to the east coast of the United States. Um, the reasonably punishing schedule where you do start to question what you're doing with your life. I mean that right. That, for those who are not who are just listening to the audio and not watching the video, I'm, I'm making looks like, are you are you mad? Like that is that's that's just torture onto itself, and that's before podcasts might have been a thing even too. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> so you you spoke about challenges. I, everybody goes through them in, in the business life cycle, even as things are going well, there's other challenges. What would you say have been some of the, the biggest challenges that the company has faced in, in your tenure? Um, I think certainly the one that, the one that immediately sticks out to me is um, around uh, 2018 um, where Cogstate had been growing pretty well for about five or six years, um, we had a nice, nice growth profile. We were getting a good amount of traction in the Alzheimer's disease clinical trials market. Um, and just as that was happening, there was a there was a series of failures of Alzheimer's disease drugs. So we were we were working on a, a, a number of different studies for a, a class of drug called base inhibitors. Um, doesn't matter what they do, they're just a type of Alzheimer's disease treatment that a number of different companies were working on. Um, and they all, they discovered with those potential treatments that they had a liver toxicity issue. So they were making people sick. And so they had to stop the study. So nothing to do with you know, any work that we'd done or you know, any failure of our own. Um, you know, all of a sudden, we lost all this revenue because the trials had to stop. Um, you know, and that was really challenging. And um, I think that, you know, if I think it's perhaps easier to 
understand when when things go wrong, but they're of your own making. It feels like, you know, um, you at least understand why. But when you sort of just, you haven't done anything wrong and it just, you know, suddenly the, the business blows up in front of you. Um, it's really hard. We had to lay off, um, you know, a whole heap of people. We took out something like about five and a half million dollars worth of salaries out of the business um, over the course of a 12-week period. Um, you know, so that was really hard. And, and honestly, the bigger challenge with that was understanding that there was going to be a period of pain after that, but the drug trials would pick up again. And making sure that you, know, you can't just keep all of your staff on because you can, literally can't afford it. But at the same time, you can't cut back to the bone and not be able to read, you know, when your customers come back to you and say, okay, we're ready to get going with a new, new drug now, you need to be able to say, yes, we're ready, as opposed to just give me six months, I need to go rehire some people. Right? And so, you know, so balancing that, getting the engagement of investors, how do you message that to investors of, look, we're going to lose some money for a little bit of time, but trust me, we know what we're doing. This will bounce back. A lot of people just go, I'm not trusting you. You know, <laughs> what are we talking about? Have you seen you? Go and have a shave, man. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, they're, they're, that's hard. And we were really lucky that we had, you know, a really supportive board, um, really supportive major shareholders who, you know, who trusted in us and who trusted that the market opportunity wasn't going away, notwithstanding the fact that we did a bump in the road. Um, yeah, so that was, I think that's probably, that probably stands out to me as the most challenging. Got it. Is, is that risk still there? You know, of, uh, I, like I said, it's I look, I think it, time. yeah, it, it, it decreases over time. I mean, you, you mitigate the risk by size and scale. Right. So, you know, if we look back um, now, so, so Cog State today has a, a contracted revenue backlog. Um, so, so the amount of revenue we have, you know, future revenue that we have under contract, about $133 million. Um, you know, at that time, we had about $20 million of revenue under contract. Right. So, so if you lose five or $10 million worth of work when you're only doing 20, that's a lot. If you use five or 10 out of 133, it's not great, but it's not the end of the world. So I think size and scale was this sort of mitigates the risk. Got it. And, and, you know, we talked at the, we joked at the very beginning that, uh, you know, you figured out the time frames, and you even just said with your background, you've gone back and forth from, you know, from Melbourne to the East coast of, of the U S what's it been like running a global business out out of Australia. I mean, you're, it, it's, a, it's an island, you know, and that requires a lot, you know, tens of hours, 20 hours of travel if you need to be someplace that we're not so much anymore, I guess, right? We're zooming here. But, but even beforehand and, and now, you know, what, what has that experience been like and how do you build a culture around that? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's certainly one of the challenges. I mean, I think Australians... And I think this is where you get the cultural differences. We understand we live on the other side of the planet to everyone else. I mean, there's just that not many people in the in the southern hemisphere compared to the northern hemisphere. So, um, you know, so the time zone challenges you just become accustomed to, and the the distance you become accustomed to. You know, it's it's the rite of passage of young Australians to you know to finish school and jump on a plane and go and spend a year somewhere. Else. So the idea of jumping on a plane for 10, 12, 15 hours. The Australians like, well, that's just what you do. Otherwise, you live as an isolationist. So, um, so you know, so you tend not to worry about it too much. Um, I think it's now, I mean, very much the industry we operate in is global. You know, so the pharmaceutical industry, everybody's working. Um, you know, so early morning calls, late night calls, all those kind of things, you know, are very standard. Um, it's changed a lot since the pandemic, honestly. The you know the adoption of of Zoom and uh, and virtual meetings and virtual work practices has changed our business um, honestly for the better. Um, for for our staff, I think it's changed things substantially, and a lot of that has been around giving people the permission to adjust their day to 
to work within these strange time zones, so lots of early morning calls, late night calls, and like but to take some time for themselves in their day so they don't end up working 14, 15-hour days, which is, you know, you can look at it as an investor, you can look at it a couple of ways. You can go, I love it if my staff are working 15-hour days, but do you really? Because are they really going to be, you know, because not many people can do that for four, five, six years. Um, and so, you know, if you want to retain good talent and things like that, you need to allow people to have a life. Um, and so the the pandemic, I think, bizarrely, has allowed people to do that a little bit more, to, you know, the, the working from home, the efficiencies that have been created with digital connections, um, you know, have allowed people to sort of relax into a, to a home life and, and fit that around their work schedules. So, you know, it's interesting. And also you've been able to, you know, show on the, on the balance sheet, oh, travel expenditures, zero. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, travel expenditure, office expenditure. Um, you know, the, so from a, from a financial point of view, so we find our staff are more efficient. Um, we, you know, we, there's a substantial reduction in costs. The staff generally like it better. It's it's been challenging for managers. So managers, I think historically, are very used to managing inputs. I can see Rob sitting at his desk. Ergo, he is working. Ergo, I am earning money. Right? There's a lot of assumptions built into that, mainly that are not true, um, or could be not true. Um, and so you have to then, you know, move to managing outputs of, you know, this is what I need you to get done today. This is what I need you to get done this week. Come back to me when you've done that. I don't really care when you do it. I just need it done. Um, and so it's a different way of managing, for sure. And then the question to become, how do you, uh, how do you innovate? How do you create opportunities for, um, for discussion? Um, you know, so what do we use our FaceTime for? Right. So we and, and we, we find that we do that differently. And I think more efficiently now because you're much more conscious about the preciousness of when you do get together face to face, that that's really important for establishing relationships and for working on things, you know, that sort of collaboration. Absolutely. All right. So I want to ch- shift gears to competition. Um, you know, when I, when I was talking to a few investors that that know Cog State very, very well, I, I asked about, you know, what what does this industry look like? Are there other companies out there that are developing similar tests or maybe just a better algorithm that is taking in the same inputs and or, or doing it for cheaper? I, I'm not sure. So can you tell me what, what does the competitive landscape look like right now? Yeah, so, I mean, and again, remembering that we're operating in, in sort of essentially two different markets. So in the in the clinical trials market, um, by and large, your competition is still a paper-based assessment with the trained physician, what we talked about before. There are a couple of companies who um, who facilitate that. There are some companies um, with, uh, with digital assessments. They tend to be a bit smaller um, than what we are and not necessarily have the same uh, degree of, of clinically validated data um, the supporting their assessments and that so that's the real the real moat for us um, is is that database um, it's the 600 plus peer-reviewed publications that we have supporting our that our technology works that it's valid that it um, correlates with important biomarkers and things like that that's really the that, that's the secret source when you when you move to that physician or the direct-to-consumer market you see a lot of different competition out there, again, not really with the same degree of clinically validated data um, that I think you need to be able to move forward. I think as we as we press forward and as we gain traction um, with what we're trying to do in that direct-to-consumer market, I think there's some really interesting opportunities in terms of creation of large databases and um, the use of AI and machine learning to, to actually improve the sensitivity and improve assessment and to get more meaningful um, information. And I think, you know, when we think about us versus our competition, um, you know, in, the, in that context, we don't have any competition who has the backing of a large pharmaceutical company pushing their, their technology forward. And I think that's a huge 
um, you know, huge advantage for us. We start with a really large database, but I think if we can grow that database substantially, and this is where I love the idea of a direct-to-consumer product, so that mass market, where we can create these enormous databases and you can learn things from them. I think then the opportunity for that database to create a real moat between us and our competition um, you know, is really important. I was just so that's gonna... the opportunity. The, the risk is execution. We're going to go and make that happen. I was well. I had two. I had two rabbit holes I want to go down to. So you can choose mm. which one we should go down first. But firstly, you know, you mentioned how there's others that have been going right to consumer that don't have that same kind of clinical validation. Does it matter that they don't have that? I mean, they're clearly out there selling and and not necessarily. I don't know if they're winning or not, but they're now out there and selling and and getting it out there. And and you're you're still in a work in progress, you know, in, in scaling that. So. Does that does that matter? So yeah, I mean, essentially, I think it has to matter over time. So okay. I think um, the assessments have to be accurate. They have to be meaningful. They have to be supported by a physician. If I if I walk in and say, you know, uh, to my my doctor and says I've done ABC test and it says whatever it says, and the doctor says I've never heard of ABC test. And let's do another assessment, and it doesn't say the same thing. It's a waste of everybody's time. It becomes a yeah. It quick. I think you quickly you fail quickly in that setting. So I think it has the okay. product has to work. Um, then I, and I think it has to be reputable, right? So it, any kind of health assessment, right? You want it to be reputable, right? You want to you want to trust that it's telling you something that's meaningful. Otherwise, you just don't do it, right? So and again, remember this isn't. This isn't a passive assessment. This is an active assessment, right? So, and what and the difference between those is so, again, take go back to that analogy we used before. Say so I'm wearing my Apple Watch and it tells me my heart rate's jumped, right? That's a passive assessment. I haven't had to do anything other than look at the information. A cognitive assessment, I actually have to go and do something. Now, it wouldn't take much time. Maybe it's only three minutes or something, but it's three minutes of my time that I'm actually devoting to something. I'm not devoting time to something unless I think that it, it, it's valid, it's scientifically proven, that it's supported by, you know, known um, academic institutions or known um, uh, patient advocacy groups, you know, the, or the, it's physician accredited, things like that. I think those things become really important. Got it. Okay, so my other rabbit hole that I wanted to go down was the idea of, um, from my understanding, doing a little research in, in preparing for today's interview is that, uh, the company's investing a lot in data and analytics, right? And you were just mentioning how the direct-to-consumer really continues to help build out that data database so that you can really utilize AI and, and, and for your offering. So tell us a little bit more about how the company is investing in data and analytics and how you hope, well, you already kind of answered that part, but tell us about how you're investing in that in data and analytics. Yeah, so I think... So we're actually going through a, an exercise at the moment of completely rebuilding our, our data platform, our data, what we call our data lake. You know, so where do, I mean, as this data comes in, where does it come in? Because you know, you'll appreciate, even if you don't have a background in data science, it's not hard to understand that over recent years, uh, the technology, the systems um, that support that have advanced considerably. So we want to recreate that basic infrastructure to make sure that we have everything in place to be able to classify that data correctly, to be able to report on it in an intuitive and automated way um, that we can apply things like machine learning and AI to that, um, you know, to that data to really, you know, suck every last ounce of juice out of it, uh, which is, you know, basically what you want to be able to do. And, you want to be able to do that in an efficient way that doesn't involve a lot of data scientists having to sit around and, you know, work on Excel spreadsheets. So my last question on the, on the healthcare, on the, on the direct to consumer side of the business, you know, to put some numbers around it, I mean, what is, what's the TAM here by TAM, total addressable market? I mean, what, how, how, what does that look like? Yeah. It's so it's huge. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, if we look at just the um, uh, so people over over the age of um, sixty, for example, um, 
you know, so world population over the age of 60 is expected to double to about 2.1 billion people by 2050, right? So if we're talking about healthy ageing and healthy brains, um, that's, that's a reasonably large, you know, uh, market opportunity, 2.1 billion people, um, you know, uh, over the course of the next uh, 30 years. Um, so, and then that's what we're talking about because we're not talking about people with Alzheimer's disease. We're talking about people who are worried about getting Alzheimer's disease, which is essentially talking about everybody who's ageing is your total addressable market. Um and, and, you know, that's where what we're doing is quite different to an Alzheimer's disease therapeutic, which is focused obviously on people who are identified with the drug. We're at the, we're at the, we're at the opening of the funnel, as we, you know, we said before. It's everybody who might be worried about that. So, you know, again, to use that, the analogy we used previously around cholesterol, cholesterol you know, measurement of cholesterol or the market for Lipitor is not people with heart disease. It's people who are worried about heart disease. Absolutely. All right. So I only have a few questions left. You've already given so much of your time today. So I really appreciate it. But a couple more questions here. But my next one is, what do investors get most confused about when they first read or find Cog State, you know, whether it's from this interview or other interviews or, you know, on a screen or something, you know, what, what tends to be the most frequently asked questions, you know, and you could see the puzzle look on their faces. Yeah, so I mean, and I, and you know, other than my accent, which confuses a lot of people, right? So if we ignore that for a second, um, I think the the biggest thing is how does um, the failure or the success of a single drug impact Cog State's revenue or market opportunity? Um, I think that that tends to be, especially lately, and especially and understandably, with the focus on um, the yeah the new Alzheimer's drugs that are potentially coming to market. Um, I think investors focus too much on that because it's in their face, right? Because it gets reported on constantly. You can read it in just the regular press. Um, yeah, the, the stories about you know the you know, disagreements about approval of a drug or, you know, what CMS is doing in terms of reimbursement of those drugs and can um, really, um, I suppose, can tend to overthink what that might mean for our business. Um, uh, th that tends to be confusion. What do we actually do? You know, so, so what's the test? I've seen it. I've seen it on your website. It's some playing cards. That looks pretty simple. Why can't somebody just come and copy that tomorrow? That's that's a pretty that that's a pretty common question that we get, um, which again is is a really reasonable one. And 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 so it it takes then a, you know uh, an exercise in describing um, you know the normative database, the the time it takes to follow Alzheimer's disease patients and prove that you know that when you assess them with a Cogstate test. That that follows the and, and follows their decline and correlates with other assessments and things like that, and just really understanding, you know, how long it takes to build up scientific evidence of, of you know of the effectiveness of these assessments, and that it is much more complex. Of you stuck some playing cards on a screen, I can do that. You know, I've got a twelve-year-old who can build an app that does that in, in ten minutes. Um, and so, you know, understanding the difference between building it and proving that it works, um, you know, is probably another one. Um, what else do people get confused about by our business? Um, look, I think, I think the, you know, just, you know, the de degree of different services we offer to our pharmaceutical companies in, in the context of clinical trials is probably the other one. So again, people tend to focus on the test um, and not really understand that in the clinical trials market, there's a much broader you know, range of services that we offer to support that cognitive assessment. And so again, why do customers buy from Cogstate in that clinical trials market? A lot of it is because of the expertise that exists, not just based on the the technology. It's a very much just a science and technology sale. Got it. All right. So, well, I hope we were able to answer a few of those frequently asked questions here today. I, I think we covered mo quite a few of them. 
Yeah. But so, so my next question for you is, you know, what, what does success look like in your best of all possible worlds? What is, what is that outcome that you're hoping to achieve? And then likewise, what does failure look like? Yeah. So I think what does success look like is um, that brain health is regularly assessed, right? So rather than, I think if we can be successful in doing that, all the financials and the other sort of things that people might define as success will take care of themselves, right? And, you know, so genuinely we actually want to leave the world a better place than we found it kind of thing of we think that that brain health is important, that it should be measured, and that it can be easily. And so success for us is that becomes standard. Rather, so we move from this conversation of why would I test, why would I want to know, to this is just something I do, right? So that's what success looks like. What does failure look like? Someone else doing that, not God's day. So I think, yeah, honestly, I think that's, you know, if we having spent this much time, created all these relationships, understanding what the opportunity is, if we missed that opportunity and that was somebody else who delivered that, um, the world would still be a better place, but it would be a bit of a shame for us. I mean, is I mean, you clearly built up quite a moat in the years of, ex- of existence and and really curating this test and curating the algorithm. I mean, are there, I mean, look, as of, as of recording this today, we're, you know, it's February 15th. Last I checked, I think the company's around 300 million market cap. That's, that's a substantial size company. I mean, it's still just over micro cap now, but I mean, is there still that risk of, you know, um, uh, one of, one of these pharmaceutical companies, eh, you know, let's just allocate a, you know, couple hundred million or 50 whatever it is build this out and we'll we'll do it better we'll take it to market ourselves and you know we're now the pharmaceutical company that validates it you know is is that risk in place or i don't know i I might be asking the question a little weird um no i think it's a reasonable question i don't so where we stand today i don't think it's a pharmaceutical company that would go and develop a cognitive test i think that's they don't think that's the business they're in but is it somebody else, you know, or is it a technology company? Is it, you know, somebody else who wants to think about that? Yeah, I think that, of course, that's a risk. I mean, and and every business has those, you know, uh, those risks of, you know, do I even exist? You know, um, um, you know, people developing film for photography. Yeah. You know, at the height, probably didn't think that they, you know, they had much risk to their to their business. Um, you know, before the advent of the digital camera. So, look, I, of course, those things exist. Um, but I think that's why we have to keep investing. We have to keep innovating. You know, so we we look at our technology um, and we have been focused on a movement from a computer or a tablet computer to mobile, right? We see that, you know, particularly if you're going to a consumer, that's what consumers use. You know, you've got to be you've got to be on their phone. Um, we've also been moving from you know from an assessment that you need to touch something to audio, mm-hmm. right? So can I do this? You know, on my phone? Can I do it with my Apple Watch? Can I do it? You know, these kind of things where I don't have to touch something, um, and in my in my native language. So we've got to keep investing in that. We've got to stay ahead of the curve and understand. Um, you know, ha- where are those changes coming from? Because otherwise there's always risks. To, I was going to say, know. how does that go fast? Because clearly I, I think we've shown throughout this interview is that that direct to consumer side is that blue sky opportunity. That's what I feel like most people, yes, you have the backlog for, for clinical trials for that, but but the direct to consumer is really the the main the main thing. You know, so how do you, how does that go faster? You know, I'm sure a lot of people probably ask you that too. Yeah, look, I think it's, um, it's, and there's an interesting conversation that's happening within Cogstate at a management level currently of how do you, um, you know, as we get larger as an organisation, um, rightly, you become more risk averse. So the people within our organisation, you know, we're, 
employ 180 people or something like that at the moment, um, they become risk averse in that they don't want to do things that are going to damage the company or damage the brand of the company, right? So how do you manage that, which is great, right? And our customers really appreciate that and they want their data secure and, you know, and to be rock solid and all those sort of things. But how do you manage that against a desire to move quickly and innovate and be, you know, nimble like a startup, right? And so, and so that's, that's a real, um, I think that's a really important thing where, and this is the role of management at an executive level to give permission in certain situations to say, we, we're acknowledging these risks when we want to get this new product out, but we're managing them and we're giving you permission that in these circumstances, we're going to acknowledge and manage those risks. And we might even talk to our customers about, you know, that we want to get this out. Do you want to partner with us on this? Here are some risks associated with it. We're going to manage those, but we want to get this moving. We need to collect data. We need to make sure it's working and we need to do that. And so putting in place that kind of culture and that kind of infrastructure that both manages risk and then allows you to take risks um, so that you can keep moving at speed is, I think, the critical aspect because otherwise the business can wrap itself into knots and not actually get anywhere. So you say you're right now, that's where the company's at, right? It sounds like. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And, and really, you know, very much it's an open conversation of we need to, we still need to be able to move as fast as an 18-month-old startup. Yeah. Right? And, and you've, got, but you've got to do, and, and we will need to be able to do that in 20 years from now. As a non-public 18-month-old startup. Being yes. able to move that fast, right? Yeah, because once you're public, it becomes a whole. It's a whole different thing. Yep. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so, and so, you know, and and I think that's a challenge. But that's a challenge that we see our pharmaceutical company customers facing. Um, you know, and they, and you see it all the time. They'll they'll, they'll talk about you know we're going to act like a biotech. We're going to you know we're going to develop this new group that's going to. This is just a this is just a constant thing that you that you can't let risk aversion get in the way of progress. Very good. All right. So to close this out, uh, my final question for you today, and I think this will be my standard final question that I'll ask everybody. Uh, you again, you're the my guinea pig here. Um, do you enjoy being a public company CEO? No matter how big or small the company is, it, it's not an easy job. So, and you've been doing it now for what is, since 2007. So like what 12 13 years so i mean or 15 years do you enjoy it um i enjoy aspects of it i think you know given a choice um would i run a private company versus a public company i think that you know the, the grass is always greener right you always think you know oh this would be so much easier if i do think it's um I do think there's some challenges associated with running a small public company that are probably quite different to running a large public company. Um, it sometimes it allows you to fly under the radar, perhaps, than when, when you um, might want to. But, but by and large, you don't have all the infrastructure and all the support you need. So as a CEO of a small public company, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of roles that you don't have someone to give that work to. You're going to do it yourself. You know, you know, writing press releases and stuff like that—that's not out of the out of the role of a small company. You know, public, small public company CEO. So, um, it's it, it's challenging. Um, but look, yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily change anything. It's it, it's where we are, and um, I do enjoy the interaction with our investors. Um, we've got some great investors. We're very lucky. Um, in that regard, I think it helps that we're that what we're trying to do, you know, has some noble ambitions, and so you do tend to attract some um, some you know people who are looking for financial returns, but also people who are looking for you know something that um, actually does some good. So we, we've got some really nice, loyal investors, and I you know and I really appreciate that. And I've met a hell of a lot of really nice people, you know, that I wouldn't if we. Um, if we're a private company. So, look, yeah, I think um, all things considered, yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's got a hell of a lot of challenges, but that's okay. That gets you up in the morning. Absolutely. 
All right. Well, Brad, we're, I think we're there. I, I think we covered quite a bit today. So uh, with that, where can our audience go and find more information to follow along the Cox State story? Yeah. So go to our website. Um, you know, we, we've just gone through a bit of a refresh of that in the last, uh, in the last couple of weeks. So cogstate.com, um, you find a lot of information there. There's a lot of webinars um, that have been recorded that you can watch there. There's different fact sheets. So if you're you know, really interested in what we do, that's the best source um, for information about us. Very good. Brad, thank you so much for doing this with me. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you in person soon. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate it. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party product services or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.